We'll be continuing our study of what is a Reformed Church, and today we're going to be looking at a group of doctrines called the Doctrines of Grace. Uh, they are called many other things, um, sometimes the Five Points of Calvinism, and there's other things. So we're going to talk about those, and we're going to do so briefly. I had an entire seminary course on these, so we could spend more time, but we're just not going to. But they're important. Uh, when we talk about what is a Reformed Church, obviously these are important doctrines to us, and so we'll talk about them before we do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Just a quick note, um, one of my students and one of uh, Emily's students as well lost their mother today. Um, we had been praying for her, and uh, she had breast cancer that came up again and finally uh, lost her battle with it. So uh, two students at our school um, one of my students and one of her art students is, uh, they're, they're really struggling right now. So I'm going to pray for them as we pray as well. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. We pray that you'd continue to bless us with it and to teach us from it. And we also pray and for the loss that they are experiencing. You, for your purposes, see this as good and for your glory, but we don't understand it here and we we just see the children that have been left behind and the suffering. And so, Lord, help them to see you through this difficult time. And we pray that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So turn with me to John chapter 3. So we're going to start with a little history lesson, as we typically do. John chapter 3, verse 36. All right, John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so this verse, whoever believes has eternal life, whoever doesn't does not, is one of the verses that a group of Dutch reformers, or I should say former Dutch reformers in the early 17th century, kind of grabbed a hold of and took dispute with many of the teachings and the followers of John Calvin in that day. John Calvin was alive in the 16th century, but his uh, outreach and had, had gone pretty far, and he had lots of followers there in the, in, in the Netherlands in particular. And so this group got together and said, we no longer believe this. We believe that anyone can believe, and, and they have that ability to do so. And so they got together and they signed a petition and that petition came to be known as the Articles of Remonstrance. The church there in the Netherlands, the Reformed Church then, saw the need to respond to that. And the Articles of Remonstrance is a pretty lengthy document, but there's five basic teachings, five articles, five statements that the uh, document makes. And so this group in the Netherlands got together and they met in a place called Dortrecht. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but it's. we'll just pretend that I did. The English shortened it to Dort, and so that makes it a lot better. And they came up with a response to each one of those articles, those five articles, and they called their response the Canons of Dort, which is what we have today. It's, the Canons of Dort is considered one of the three forms of unity in the Reformed Church. It's a very important document. Each of the five points of the Remonstrance were responded to. And that's what we're going to go over today. 
in the much later, in the 20th century, Reformed believers started using the acronym TULIP in order to describe and summarize these canons of Dort. And they've even now been shortened to, sadly, I don't really like this distinction, the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin would be shocked to hear that, that he only had five points of doctrine. Um, if you just look at the book that he published and wrote, that's kind of big, and there's a lot more than five things in there. Um, a f- better treatment of that would just really look at something like the Heidelberg Catechism or the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Confession. These probably are better summaries of all of his doctrines. However, we do have these five points that we definitely see as important because they have to do with how God and man interact and, and God's plan for salvation. And so we'll be looking at each of those doctrines. They are pretty controversial. There's a whole lot of time spent talking about these doctrines, and there's whole YouTube channels devoted to anti-Calvinism, and so which is just fascinating to me that people have that much time to talk about something that's whatever. Anyway, so the first one, the T of the tulip, is total depravity. Turn with me to Genesis chapter six, and I think it's important to note. Um, I think one of the misconceptions of the uh, non-reformed person and even sometimes the anti-reformed person is to think that the only thing that Calvinists ever talk about are these five points, and that's just silly. Um, But we are able to talk about them. Genesis 6, verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That makes a lot of words to say that what is man's intention? Evil. What is it only ever? Evil. Romans chapter 3. Another passage that you've probably heard me quote often. Romans chapter 3. Starting at verse 10. It says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Seems like we just read this this morning in Isaiah 6. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If we look at just these two verses, and again, we could just, we could spend the rest of this year talking about verses that deal with total depravity. What is the condition of man before Christ? We talked about it this morning in Isaiah 6. Are they able to understand? Are they seeking after God? Is the deal that, is what we dealt with in Isaiah 6 really a people who were seeking after God and God was somehow pushing them away? No, no, you can't seek me now. No, no, not what we want. No, no, you can't. No, that's not at all what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the people who were seeking their own way and God was practicing judgment on them. And so, How can then man be delivered from this? 
Well, if no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, there is no fear of God before their eyes, is man going to then turn to God on his own and just be like, oh, I get it now. I'm bad and I need to be good. That's not what happens. The only way that he can come out of this condition is God's own intervention. We saw that today when we looked at Isaiah 6. What did who, who is it that gave them to hear? Some have been given to hear. Well, some have been given by whom? By themselves? By God. And so outside of God's own intervention, man is unable to respond to God. Any questions, thoughts on that? Any, any concerns? Any common questions that you hear? This is, the, this is the crux of all of it, by the way. Problems that people have with the five points of Calvinism all stem from their understanding of total depravity. Because what they really believe is that, no, I'm not as bad as Scripture says. The remonstrants who, who penned that petition said, no, man has some ability in order to seek after God. Yep, Todd. Yeah. When I first uh, heard this, uh, I, I guess I heard a little bit, but really first heard it uh, was from Brother Rick. And Heart of Baptist, Randy Taylor, taking me out there to talk to And we talked two or three times for about four hours. And I can tell you, I hated this. Uh, I didn't want to hear it. And I didn't want him to tell me what was going on. And I didn't make fun of him. And I think you bring up a good point. 
This is something that Christians disagree on, that Christians disagree on. This doesn't somehow separate us from non-Christians. There are some in the Reformed faith, sadly, that would say, no, if you don't believe this, I can't believe that you're a Christian. Well, those people are silly. They just need to get over themselves. Uh, because that's we're, we're not having that. That's not the issue. You know, this isn't a salvation issue. It's about salvation, but it's not about your salvation. If you believe different from me, that's okay. We disagree. We should look at the scriptures together, you know, but we're not. This doesn't separate Christians from non-Christians. This, recept, this separates reform from non-reform, which is what a lot of what we've talked about does, you know. And so I think that's an important distinction that we're making here. Um, and the other, the other side of this coin, of this total depravity coin, is the concept of free will. And this is what you hear people say over and over again, and people... And I, we can go. We can go real deep here. So I'm gonna try to temper myself. Um, people conflate the idea of my everyday actions and having will and those and making decisions for myself with my ability to call upon God from a from a state of depravity. Those aren't the same things. Me choosing to pick my phone up and me choosing to call upon the Lord from a state of depravity are two completely different things. And so we have to be careful. I am dead in my sin. I cannot call after God. I'm a, we talked about last week. You know, I'm a child of wrath. I'm a son of disobedience. Outside of his own mercy, outside of his gift of grace and faith, I cannot turn to him. And so that is the crux of this. The other side of the coin is, yes, I can. I can turn to him. There's enough, and they, that, and I don't want to really go down that. They basically say that there's enough there for man to come to a place where they accept and believe, and they can do that in and of themselves. Yep, go ahead. Sorry, just two, two things that bother me a lot to kind of better grasp this is one, the idea of Lazarus. And we look at that as Lazarus died, he went into the tomb, he was, he was buried, he was dead for days. And Jesus came and said, roll away the stone. And he said, Lazarus, come out. Mm-hmm. Lazarus had a choice to come out. He was dead. Right. And so we look at that the same way that he was dead in our trespasses. And Jesus calls us to come out. And then the other one was the idea of our nature and who we are and the nature of the lion. Right. And if I take a lion and starve that lion for a month, and then I take a big bowl of bloody red meat and set it out in front of him. And I take a big bowl of the best salad that I can prepare of, you know, cucumbers, lettuce, carrots, whatever you want, ranch dressing. And I open that cage. The lion has a choice to make. He can choose that bowl of bloody meat or he can choose that bowl of salad. What's he going to choose? He's going to choose that bowl of bloody meat. Because he's an armor. That's his nature. Yeah. And so my nature has to be changed for me to choose what That's good. Yeah, and only God does that. I mean, and it's referred to in Scripture several ways. Being born again. Make, making a new creation. And so that we have to be changed in our nature. That's good. Um, and again, this is the, the hinge point. If, you, if we disagree here, we're, we're just going to get further and further <coughs> separated on this. Any questions? All right. So, unconditional election is the U. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And so, we read here that from the foundation of the earth, God has appointed a people, or has chosen or elected a people for himself. And what is that choice based upon? Why did he do so? Well, he tells us in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Why did he choose a people from the beginning of the earth? According to the counsel of his own will. His own will, not ours. And his choice is not based upon anything that we're going to do. It's according to his own purposes. Not that we're going to somehow choose him and he looks down the corridors of time and says, yep, there's one that's going to choose me. And then he saves that person. But he has only saves one type of people, his enemies, not those that choose after him. And so to say otherwise then is to attribute some sort of merit to the believer. There is a, or to the unbeliever, that person made a choice and then God is choosing them based on their choice. And this goes again back to the total depravity. If man is completely unable to seek after God in and of himself, then God then must seek after him. And it would stand to reason that God has a people that he chose to seek after. I think Ephesians 1 makes this very clear. We could go all over the place in scripture, but again, we don't have a lot of time to do that this morning. But there are people that he has chosen for himself. Think of the Tower of Babel. What happened at the Tower of Babel? They, they were prideful. God scattered them with all these different languages. And then he went and found one people who were serving him and he chose those people. No. He went and found Abram and Abram was serving other gods. And he said to Abram, go to the place that I will show you. I will make your people as many as the stars in the heavens, as many as the sands on the seashore. And your people, through your people, the whole world will be blessed. It wasn't based on Abram's choice. Oh, yeah, I was just thinking about you, God, and how I really wanted to serve you. He was serving other gods, and God went to him. And so, questions. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of predestination, and you see the word there, predestination, a couple times in Scripture. And and that's I think the word predestination is so weighty in the church today that I have a hard... I mean, I'm fine with using it, of course, but when people say, oh, you believe in predestination, then they bring all of their baggage to the table. 
And uh, what I typically do is just read the passages that I read for you and ask them, so what does that mean? I mean, yeah, Todd, go ahead. It's real hard to hold up. You know, when Jesus told the disciples, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's He wasn't saying, I chose myself, that, that you would be chosen. Or There's some real gymnastics you have to do. To, and again, I respect my brothers and sisters that disagree with me on this point. But the very plain reading of Ephesians 1 is something I very much have a hard time getting around. I mean... This is one question that, this is the question I get the most actually from students at school. They'll come to me, Chipman, I heard you believe in predestination, is that true? Yes, but what do you think predestination is? And then they'll tell me something that they've heard or they don't know. And I'll say, all right, do you have your Bible? They'll pull up their phone. I said, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and read it out loud. They'll read it, and then I'll just say, all right, what does that say? I don't know, I have to think about it, is what they'll, I mean, inevitably. I've never seen this before. Of course you haven't seen that. You know? I had talked to one student whose youth pastor refused to talk about it with him. So he came to talk to me about it, which was just horrible, you know, that that took place. And I've heard, you know, other people were like, this is what my family believes. We don't agree with you, Chipman. This is what my family believes. I'm like, have you ever read this? I don't really read the Bible much, but I know what I believe is what they'll say to me. And I'll say a Christian cannot say that because what you believe should be based on the Bible. And so, and again, there are really smart people who disagree with me on this that, that do use Scripture and are very fluent in languages and everything. So I'm not trying to belittle or straw man their point at all. I have a hard time getting around the plain meaning of this text. And so, again, I think that any choice that we have somehow gives ourselves the ability to do that and his own choice gives me no ability and I'm more comfortable with that. Any questions about that before we move on? Alright, the L is limited atonement. This is everyone's favorite. Um, this is probably the most controversial of the four or the five points. <clears throat> A lot of times people will call themselves four-point Calvinists to which I say then you, I call you inconsistent, but uh, that's just a fun jest. Uh, if man is unable to save himself, which we've established total depravity, and God has a people set aside for himself, then who is God going to come to save? Those people that he has set aside for himself. Makes sense. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I quoted from this today. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And I told you that this was the angel saying that to Mary, but no, it's Joseph. Matthew 1, 21. This is the angel. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, in order for me to get to the point that Jesus came to save everybody, I have to believe that everybody are his people, and that all of his people are the ones that he chose from the foundation of the earth. And so for me, all of a sudden, everyone is going to be saved. That's, that's the logical conclusion I get to. And again, I realize there are people who disagree with me on that. I'm not going to uh, hopefully not set up a straw man for that because I'm not trying to. This is just the conclusions that I come to. If he came to save all and all are not saved, then did he fail the thing that he came to do? And so, again, this is the most controversial, but it's usually because they're attributing some kind of injustice to God. That doesn't seem right, that God would only come to save some. And then they'll, then usually the question, the follow-up is, well, I can't believe that people that want to be saved aren't able to be saved because they're not part of God's elect. And again, they've messed up on the tee. Because no one wants to be saved. There is no one in hell that is looking up to heaven thinking, I wish I was one of the elect. No, the people in hell are gnashing their teeth because they hate God. That's what they're doing. And there's no one in heaven thinking, or that was drug up to heaven against their will, thinking, man, I really hate it here. I wish that I could somehow go to hell with all my friends. No one is in heaven thinking that. The only people are in heaven are the people who God has changed their nature to make them be his kids, be his children. I love the sound of babies, by the way. Don't think anything of it. <laughs> it doesn't faze me in the least. So that is where we're at. I think one trouble that people have with this is they somehow, again, they... God is somehow not right. But remember, God would have been right to destroy every single man and woman. And uh, to save any, to save one is immeasurably more than he needed to do or should have done. Yeah, Todd, go ahead. Uh, just real quick, I know this messes up the two word here. Uh, in R.C. Sproul and his book, um, he too, Yeah. And which I like that because it gives the idea of Christ's blood was shed and did what it was supposed to do for every person. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to do it for so it's unlimited in its power. Yeah. Unlimited in its scope and and yeah, I get I think and the again the words are this acronym is something that someone came up with in like the twentieth century. So it does, the words are limited in that way. Because I think when people hear the words limited atonement, they're like, are you limiting God? No, God limits himself. God chose a people. That means that other people weren't chosen, right? I mean, by definition. And who did the, who made the limitation? God made his own limitation. No one instructed God on that. And so, uh, and again, had God chosen to not save anyone, he would have been right to do so. 
any thoughts on that before we move on? I know this is just a survey, and if you guys have a lot of, if you have other questions or we can talk about them over lunch. The I is irresistible grace. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 actually has all of these points in them, I think. And again, John chapter 6 and 17 in several places. And John, you could teach all of this from there. There's actually a very good series. Uh, Ligonier puts it out on John chapter 6. And it's just the doctrines of grace from John 6. And it's very, very good. Very thorough uh, if you're interested in that. Uh, John 10 verses 3 and 4. To, to him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, this is Jesus saying, call himself the good shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The sheep hear his voice, they respond to it. This is the I, the irresistible grace. When God calls, Someone, they come to him. When Lazarus was called out of the tomb, Lazarus came out of the tomb. There wasn't any hesitancy. I don't know, God. I don't know if I want to do that. Um, there are several places in Scripture that deal with this idea of, of uh, irresistible grace. Nicodemus is one of my favorites in Daniel. In Daniel where Nicodemus is on his roof and he sees the kingdom and he thinks about all the greatness that he's done and God calls him out of that, causes him to be some kind of wild man for a while. And what is Nicodemus's response at the end of that time of his life? He calls upon the name of the Lord because he was unable to resist. And again, no one is being dragged into heaven. People's natures are being changed and that and that is... You're unable to resist the creator of all things changing you. No one is being, I mean, no one is able to resist God. And some people will say things like, well, God is a gentleman and he would never do anything like that. Show me in scripture where God is a gentleman and would never cause people to do things. I mean, what did we read last a couple weeks ago? He's going to whistle for the Babylonians, and they're going to come, and they're going to wreck Judah. And then he's going to destroy the Babylonians for their sin. Did the Babylonians somehow say, you know what, God, we've thought about this, and we really don't like the end of the agreement where we're going to get destroyed. No. They went in, and they wrecked Judah, God's own people, and then God sent someone to destroy them. All according to God's plan. And so uh, I have a hard time with anyone who says that we could somehow resist God. And it's, it, it's difficult, I think, for that. Any questions there? And then lastly, the P, the perseverance of the saints. And this is one that most Christians agree with. However... This is different from the idea of once saved, always saved. Typically, the idea of once saved, always saved is taught like this. Well, I was at church camp when I was seven, and I prayed to receive Christ, and I wrote this date in my book, and I really haven't gone to church or lived for Him much since then, but I know that He saves me because that one time I prayed a prayer. Well, 
perseverance of the saints is a much better term for this because what does it mean to persevere? It means to keep going. It means to continue. That thing that has changed in you, you were going to persevere in that. If he has changed my nature, then I'm going to continue to exhibit that changed nature. The lion, the, the lion example that Todd gave. If the lion's nature is changed to eat lettuce, then that nature will persevere. He's not going to start eating meat again and be like, yeah, I kind of tried the lettuce and wasn't really digging it. You know, it's kind of like the Christian that prayed when they were, the kid who prayed when they were seven. Yeah, I got 18 and went to college and started hearing all the smart people and they convinced me otherwise. But I kind of have this insurance anyway, you know, in case it's real. I prayed and God's going to honor that. No, he's not going to honor something that he didn't do. People who are God's children will act and look just like God's children. We've talked about this at length. You know, John chapter 10, what I referred to earlier. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. The believer perseveres. They continue to act and look like a believer. In Matthew chapter 13, he talks a lot about this too. The seed that falls on different places. Which seed perseveres? The one that falls on good soil. Why is the soil good? Because that person made it good? Because the person was able to say, yep, I'm ready to receive the soil. No, God makes the soil good. God is the one who causes that heart to be able to receive that seed and for it to grow up in them. The other ones are choked out. And um, I think we see that a lot in the church today. Questions about that idea? I know that's a lot to take in, um, a whole lot. But I think it is important, and I think it's important for us to understand that what do all these have to do with? They all have to do with salvation and how man and God interact in that relationship. There's a whole lot more to the Reformed faith, which we've been talking about, and I, and I want to make that a, a clear. When we talk about Reformed faith, we're not just talking about the five points of Calvinism. Calvin had a lot more points than that. I encourage you to look at, I mean, he wrote a big book. Um, it's a kind of a hard book to read, but he wrote a lot of little books too. And his, you know, the guys who wrote the confession, they read Calvin. And so read the Westminster Confession. There's a whole lot more to our faith and our Reformed faith than these five points. And a lot of brand new Calvinists would do well to remember that because they get a little crazy. Um, any, any questions before we have lunch? And if you have questions, you want to talk to me during lunch, feel free to do that. Talk to Todd. He knows all this, too. And uh, <laughs> You know a whole lot more than you think. You've studied this very uh, thoroughly, so I think you'd be, a, you'd be a good resource, too. One of the biggest things that I've learned, you know, along with this, and like I said, it was a tough journey, and still is, as I try to explain it. And when I hear it sometimes out loud, when I'm telling my kids, I'm thinking, is this right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I still so struggle with that. But I, I tell this one example. I don't, I don't think either of our party will mind me saying this, but we had an interaction. Uh, we had a men's Bible study one day, and there were several people that came, and um, Kyle Reed was there. I don't know if you all know Kyle, but Kyle has his candy on steroids. That's the best way I can describe it. And uh, he and Andy were there, and I invited my friend Tommy Phillips. Some of you guys know Tommy. 
And Tommy is uh, what I would call a very staunch Church of Christ guy. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy, brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. And on that day, we happened to be talking about some of these things. And it was very difficult for Tommy to hear those things. And he did not believe those things. And Amy and Kyle um, talked to him rather sternly, and Tommy never came back. Hmm. And over a period of a few years, Amy went to him and ate with him and invited him to go hunting and hired his wife, Valerie to work for him and hired his daughter to work for him. And they have all become very close. Does Tommy believe any of this? No, he still does not. But Andy made every effort to resume that bond of friendship and Christian love. And so what I saw from that, what I took from that is what you said at the very first. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that we have that don't believe this, that will never believe this. But this is not a separation of a non-Christian and a Christian. It's a separation between somebody who believes in this form of theology and the other. I'm just going to add to that. You know, this is uh, because I grew up you know, with different views uh, on this particular topic, obviously. And I'm it's a, it's a topic that I'm still studying a lot. Yeah. Todd and I talk a lot about this kind of stuff, and Andy and I as well. And I think that on certain topics, like, like this, for example, that are obviously uh, hotly debated, and not just for the last 10 years, right. for the last, you know, hundreds. hundreds and hundreds of years, something that's so hotly debated. I think one of the things that, that really has to happen on, on both sides of not just this topic, but other topics like this. Mm-hmm. There has to be a tremendous amount of, of humility on both sides, you know, and I think that's one of the things when I was, when I was, in, uh, when I was in college, uh, we had a, a student, uh, and you know, who it is, and I won't mention his name, so it doesn't matter, but, uh, came and, uh, was very, uh, I would say extremely arrogant. You know, came into our class and basically, literally said in front of all classes, like, I'm here to debate you to the teacher about, in fact, it happened to be about these five months of Calvinism. <laughs> and it was sort of like, you know, it, it just came across as just a very arrogant, uh, like, I've, I'm now enlightened, I now see the light, I'm here to enlighten everybody else. And I think on certain points, within scripture, I think there are certain things that, you know, are absolutely just so, you know, like black and white. For me, I'm talking about for myself, like for example, when I'm in China, and you know, I obviously have a lot of time to talk to people about Christ, what separates Christ from other world religions, and to me, I cannot get away from certain things that you see in scripture and I will take those and I hold on to them very tightly and say uh, you know like Jesus is the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except for him how could someone approach a holy God you know how could you be saved without Christ 
you know, mm-hmm. I can't get away from that. And if it offends you, then I'm sorry it offends you, but you know, but so be it. Um, but then there are other things that you know, I when I'm having discussion with people, uh, I there's a certain grace that that I have, you know, towards towards other people who I don't maybe agree with on. Again, it's on certain topics that are topics that even, you know, theologians for hundreds and hundreds of years have really, you know, struggled with things like, uh, for, I mean, another one would be like the spirit. Exactly how does the spirit work within us? Right. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough. And so those are the kinds of discussions, like if I was having a discussion with maybe some of my more charismatic brethren, I would, you know, have a certain grace about how I talk. With, with people, and uh, I think that's one of the things that, that really we, I think, as, as brethren, have to avoid sort of like the scoffing attitude, like, I don't know how you could possibly see that. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. not saying you have been, or, no, no not, I not at all. Uh, I'm just saying, I think, just in general, there are certain things that would help to hopefully bring us closer together and, and, be able to have discussion about things like this mm-hmm. when there's true humility, um, you know, within uh, our, our discussions and our, our conversations. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think one of the errors that a lot of, particularly younger believers, people who just come into the Reformed faith, they're so excited because they have this little nugget that they want to show everybody, mm-hmm. and they they real, they don't realize how small their knowledge is, you know. And one thing that I was taught uh, in seminary and have been shown over and over since then, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The bigger the circle of your knowledge is, the more you are exposed to the unknown. And so that should humble you as opposed to cause you to be puffed up in your knowledge. And so, yeah, totally agree. We should have a lot more grace than we usually do in these matters because we're all on the same team. And I think... More and more uh, in the coming years, we're going to need to gather around the things that we hold together as opposed to these things that we differ in. Um, thankfully, we've been afforded the freedom to have YouTube channels devoted to one minor issue. Um, and my Calvinist brothers and sisters have the same sort of problem, so it's, it's, it's all over the place. So, yeah, we do need to concentrate on these things that unite us for sure. Let me pray for us, have uh, the Lord bless our food, and then we'll dismiss. Let's pray. Father, as, as we again come to your word, we are thankful that there are so many things that unite us all in Christ. And for these things that we have questions about that are maybe not as clear, we pray that you would give us charity with one another and that we would seek to glorify you and you alone, not our own selves, but that we would be humble as we speak to one another. We pray also that you would bless this food and our conversations for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.